This copyrighted podcast is presented by the U.S. Highbush Blueberry Council. The opinions and views shared by those of non-paid guests on the business of blueberries are those of our guests and do not represent the views, positions, or policies of the USHBC. The blueberry industry is like no other, passionate, resilient, and innovative. This podcast is your source for the latest information on the management, markets, research, and technology related to blueberry production. This is the business of blueberries. Here's your host, president of the U.S. Highbush Blueberry Council, Casey Cronquist. Welcome back to another episode of The Business of Blueberries, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to the blueberry industry. Now, I'm just back from a very successful blueberry summit in Savannah, where one of the exciting aspects to that event was getting to look at the new science and technology for the blueberry industry. I'm very pleased to be joined with a leading scientist in the blueberry industry, Dr. Lisa DeVetter from Washington State University. Lisa leads the statewide small fruit horticulture program and is based at WSU's Northwestern Washington Research and Extension Center in Mount Vernon, Washington. She joined WSU in 2014 and has developed a diverse research and extension program with an emphasis on maximizing productivity, fruit quality, and on-farm efficiencies. Her primary research areas include optimizing pollination services in small fruit crops, improved end-of-life management of agriculture plastics used in small fruit crop production, machine harvesting technologies, and nutrient management. She first appeared on our podcast back in episode 104 when we talked about the extreme weather events impacting the blueberry crop in the Northwest. I'm very glad she was willing to come back for today's episode on pollination. Lisa, thank you for joining me on another episode of The Business of Blueberries. Thanks, Casey. It's really great to be back. Well, it's great to have you back. Uh, Great to have had you virtually there in Savannah as well. But uh, again, I don't think we can talk about this topic enough. And I think you study a lot of different things in your role, but I understand that blueberry pollination is your favorite. So why is that? And, And how did you really get started in this area? Yeah, yeah. Full disclosure, it's one of my favorite topics. What started me on it was when I first arrived at Washington State University, I was looking for projects to work on that would be impactful, and pollination and improving fruit set and yields was one of the top tier research priorities that the Washington blueberry industry articulated. And then from there, it's kind of spiraled upward, not downward, um, where I've been able to engage in other research projects with other institutions, as well as private entities as well. Yeah, it's it's incredible, right? That the experience we had in Savannah, where you know you have companies from Israel and uh, and people from all over the world who are really focused on helping our growers tackle the challenges that are involved with pollination, and really again fascinating to have your time here to kind of walk us through you know what all is being done and the value you see in helping us address these issues that we face with pollination. But before we dive into the technical aspects of pollination, let's talk about the importance. What What's the opportunity here moving forward for our blueberry fields? What's at stake if we don't get it right? Yeah, well, many growers have probably and unfortunately experienced episodes where they've had poor pollination, and it means reduced fruit set, berry size, and yields. Uh, so, you know, taking a step back, what pollination is, it's a precursor for fruit development in blueberry. And we also see this relationship that the better pollination that we receive, the improvement in berry size as well, uh, to a threshold, to a point. And larger berry size is really critical, not just for quality, but also for growers to try to meet their yield potential. 
I also was just kind of doing a little bit of um, economic investigations and came across papers from some colleagues and other researchers in the field. And here in the United States, they estimated the economic value on an annual basis of um, pollination service to blueberry from honeybees was 500 million. And for wild bees, it was 50 million. So it's got a really important economic value as well. And what I'm finding, you know, fascinating about the conversations is there's a number of different ways for our blueberry growers to seize opportunities or tackle the challenges, whichever one, you know, again, we're, we're talking about as they see it. Um, and, and we're talking about what, what's at stake if they don't get it right. But to the extent that research has come up with recommendations that every bush receive four to eight honeybees visitations per bush during their peak bloom, what types of things should growers focus on to make that happen? I think, um, 48 bees per flower, I think it doesn't necessarily have to be that. Um, it really is variable. So it depends on the insect, like a bumblebee is really effective. A lot of blueberry growers know bumblebees are just great insects at pollinators, but even a honeybee can carry enough pollen to provide pollination service to a single flower with a single visit. I think, you know, some things that growers can do to try to improve pollination is what I call building their pollination portfolio. So looking at, um, you know, one habitat, habitat that's beneficial for honeybees that are coming to their farms, but also other native pollinators if their landscapes permit, so that you can try to also take advantage of some of those other insects that are freely available and can provide pollination. And then the other one is, is working with their beekeepers. There's a lot of fantastic beekeepers. They know what they're doing. And for those growers that are relying on honeybees, making sure that they're getting quality hives, uh, strong hives, and they're also managing the field and being good stewards of the land while the time that those honeybees are in the farm as well. I think those are some of the most impactful things that a grower can do right now and today. We also have the opportunity to take advantage of what technology is afforded or being developed in this space through what we're utilizing our Berry Smart Fields project. And we're working with Steve Mantle there at Innovate Ag. And I want to talk a little bit about how you see that, you know, taking advantage of what is being done, maybe in other places, maybe they're particularly focused on blueberry growers. um, But can you talk about how you see those things coming together in that project there in Washington? Yeah, absolutely. So, There's a lot of new technologies and tools in this space of kind of the digitization of agriculture and pollination is just one piece of them. And the opportunities that I see with the Berry Smart project is, for example, with Innovate Ag, you have the ability to kind of try these different technologies and aggregate them together, uh, in particular, kind of aggregate the data together, provide some analytics, and at the end of the day, give growers the ability to utilize and leverage that data in making those decisions. Yeah, no, it's been fascinating. And and for those who were in Savannah, they got to see a clip of you working with Steve and then working with all those companies uh, discussing this as uh, the spirit at which this tech project, you know, Barry Smart Fields is moving forward. And, you know, as you saw that project kind of unfold, what were your takeaways from the field day, the opportunity you had to see the technology kind of all working together? And essentially what you're looking at is, competitors uh, for this kind of technology coming together into one field and being tested, but then finding alignment and some of these things that you're saying get aggregated into a best practice? Yeah, I think it was friendly competition. 
I think they all the niches that they can fill. Every farm is different and every need is different. And, you know, that's kind of where I saw these different tech companies, particularly on the pollination side, um, mingling and coalescing around when it comes to um, what Innovate Ag and similar type companies have the opportunity to provide. And and not that it has to be limited to what technology that you saw that we've brought to the Berry Smart Fields, but what is the most innovative thing that you're seeing right now in this space? Like when you step back and take a look at, you know, where it's going and how much there is being done and how much is being spent to try and solve a lot of the challenges that is related to pollination, what impresses you the most? That's a really hard question because there's a lot of things that are very impressive. I think up at the top is probably just giving growers data to make decisions on. And I see a lot of movement, both in the public and private side on that. And then after that, I think probably the mechanical pollination is really intriguing uh, because we live in a world where you know we don't necessarily achieve successful pollination from the insects that we normally rely on. So having the opportunity to come in and provide something mechanically where you can kind of take out some of that variability and, and do it yourself, maybe in conjunction or without those insect pollinators. I think that's a really unique and important niche, particularly if we're thinking too about other blueberry production systems that are under tunnels or in greenhouses where honeybees won't fly. They won't forage very well in those situations. So it's providing a really interesting tool. And again, filling, I think, a niche that is not really there you're being filled right now. Excellent. Well, I know uh, we've got a lot more to talk about here and I want to kind of dive into that. But first, uh, we have our crop report. So with North American harvest having come to an end, we are turning our attention to the fruit being grown and shipped in other parts of the world. So here once again is your blueberry crop report. It's time for your blueberry crop report, an update on crop conditions and markets from important blueberry growing areas. Today, you'll hear from Mario Ramirez in Mexico and Luis Vegas in Peru. This was recorded on October 26th, 2023. Hey everyone, here Mario with the Mexican Blueberries Report for week 42 from October 16 to October 22. During week 42, Mexico exported 766,000 pounds of fresh blueberries worldwide and 95% of the production goes to the United States and Canada with 700,000 pounds. This week there are no volumes of organic blueberries reported and the total exportation growed 5% respecting previous week. Compared with the same week of the last season, there's a difference of 43% less volume. We have observed a decrease of 15% from the beginning of the season to date, respecting previous year. If this tendency continues, this season Mexico could have a minor season, representing a variation of the growth tendency of the last years for the blueberries industry in the country. In frozen blueberries, Mexico exported 55,000 pounds. It is 37 higher than week 41 and represents only 2% of the total importation of frozen blueberries to the United States for week 42. In weather, there are some affectations reported in the northern region due to Hurricane Paulina, but there are just affectations on the supplies, not in the production hectares or in the production volumes. That's all in my report. Thank you very much and see you next week. 
Hello, this is Luis with a crop report from Peru until the end of week 42, which is the week ending on October 22nd. The Peruvian season 2023-2024 started in weekend 18 and until the end of week 42, Peru has shipped a total of 206 million pounds of fresh blueberries worldwide, representing a drop of 49% versus the volume shipped last season. The main reason for the drop in volume has been the atypical weather because of El Niño phenomenon that has caused the average temperatures to increase by 7 to 9 degrees Fahrenheit, affecting significantly blueberry production in our country. From the overall volume shipped so far this season, 49% has been sent to the US, 29% to Europe, 17% to China, and 5% to other destinations. Also, from the total volume shipped, 10% have been organics. During week 42, a total of 19.8 million pounds have been shipped, representing a drop of approximately 48% versus the volume shipped on the same week last season. 59% of the volume shipped during week 42 has been sent to the US, with approximately 11.6 million pounds which are expected to arrive the US market during mid-November. 28% of the volume during week 42 has been sent to Europe, 9% to China, and a reminder 4% to other destinations. So this is the report from Peru until the end of week 42. Thank you. Well, thanks so much to our colleagues around the world who take time to participate in these important reports. As a reminder, you can go to the new ushbc.org forward slash data website to find out the Data and Insight Center to see more of what's happening in our blueberry industry. Go to ushbc.org forward slash data to check that out. Now back to today's conversation with Dr. Lisa DeVetter. Lisa, we were just talking a little bit about all the variations that uh, growers can consider, the kind of best practices approach for you know, improving opportunities of pollination. But uh, you're part of a national project that develops a pollination planner to help blueberry growers improve those practices. Can you talk about that project and how growers can take advantage of that? Sure, absolutely. Well, first, you know, just want to acknowledge that I'm really privileged and lucky to work with a fantastic team of uh, entomologists, ecologists, um, economists, statisticians. So it's a really broad, diverse team. And I think we each bring something to the puzzle. We've been doing lots of different experiments in the field and greenhouses, but our ultimate goal at the end of this project is this pollination planner that you mentioned. And it's going to be publicly available and it's what we call evidence-based decision support tool. And there'll be two components. And I'm happy to elaborate a little bit more on what those components are. Yeah, please. Yeah. Um, I'm really excited. So we just saw a mock-up of this just the previous day with um, some of our partners on the project. So the first one will be a bloom phenology model. And this is based on two years of data that we've collected in regionally relevant locations, Washington, as well as Oregon, Michigan, and Florida. And it will help growers, as well as beekeepers that might choose to use it, um, understand how the progression of bloom will be going for a given field location and for a given cultivar. So that can help beekeepers know when to start bringing in the bees and likewise when a grower should know about when they should start timing the arrival of their bees as well as the departure of their bees. 
And I think an added benefit is as well is um, we don't want to be spraying when honeybees are in the field or we want to be minimizing it. So if a grower can have a good understanding of the progression of bloom and when bees will be exiting, I think it'll also have an added benefit to help them time their pesticide applications so they minimize exposure to bees. The second component is our honeybee stocking model. And so what this will tell a grower is when they change stocking density of honeybee hives for their farm and for their cultivar, how it will affect their estimated yield potential as well as their profitability. Well, everybody's going to be looking for that. Uh, so talk a little bit about, you, you're just seeing the f- initial mock-up. What, what's, the, what's the scenario which growers can get their hands on this? What's the timing? Well, we're going to be doing some beta testing early next year. So we'll be reaching out to some growers that we've been working with in the past on this and just kind of have them do a trial run and tell us what they like about it, what they don't like about it. And then after that, we'll incorporate their feedback and release it more broadly. So again, it'll be first Washington, Oregon, Florida, and Michigan. And if there's no nearby weather station, um, it would use grid sampling and come up with an estimate for temperature for those models that need temperature data for the predictions. Wow, that's interesting because I, I did have that question of how do you apply this, you know, given all the variabilities that everybody is going to be, you know, uniquely facing in their fields, in their region, uh, and, and in particularly how you see the climate change conversation being an intersection at which, you know, pollination often gets described. So if it's a bad weather event, for pollinators, then the pollination doesn't happen. I would put a fine point on this season in the Pacific Northwest, a lot of conversation about it being weather related and then hearing also, well, that also meant pollination issues or did it. And people saying it was a pollination issue, not a weather event. And maybe you could kind of help split hairs on, you know, one is certainly related to the other, unless it's not. And talk a little bit about how does a national project like this help address those kinds of issues? Yeah, so this national project, we've been thinking a lot about temperature impacts on pollination, both the bees as well as the blueberry plants themselves. So people have different opinions, so I might just cause the hair to have more split ends. But, um, you know, normally in Washington, we have cool, wet conditions that are not conducive for pollination. But during our bloom period, we had high temperatures. It was in the 80s in northwestern Washington. And... um, What I believe happens based on some of the data collected from this project and students working on the project is that at these high temperatures, 85 degrees Fahrenheit and above, the viability of the pollen in the blueberry flower declines. And in many cases, depending on the temperature, it's not recoverable. And we reached those temperatures in many field sites. So what I believe happened is that when we reached those high temperatures, pollen viability went down. And if we don't have viable pollen, we can't have pollination and or minimal pollination. And if you recall earlier, I said, you know, the better the pollination, better size on the berries. Well, we lost our berry size because of lower pollination because of pollen viability due to those high temperatures. Oh, I did not know that. So uh, that's interesting. And also another thing to say, don't blame the bees that uh, they, they may have been doing their work, but the actual edification of the pollination was reduced significantly because of the high temp. So that that to me is new for me. I didn't realize that it was actually the pollen being affected, but and maybe others don't. So So in that case, when do we say that the weather is impacting the bees? Yeah, absolutely. Well, 
weather will impact different species in different ways for our main pollinator honeybees and high bush blueberry systems. Usually what we're looking at with our early spring bloom time is reduced pollinator activity because it's cold, it's wet, it's suboptimal for their foraging. And that's where, again, wild pollinators can be an advantage if they're present in the field. Rarely have we seen temperature at the other end of the extreme, higher temperatures affect us. But as we're looking at climate change and these more erratic weather patterns, I think it's something that we're going to start factoring in and thinking about, well, how do we mitigate this as an industry so that we can protect our crop and meet our yield potential? Sure. And is there a way to test the pollen's viability? What can be done to address when you know the pollen's gone past its temperature state that would otherwise create for an optimal pollination period? What, what do you do? Um, well, you can test pollen viability. That's what um, I'll mention Jenna Walters. She's a PhD student at Michigan State University. She did a lot of that work. It's very time and labor intensive. But, you know, what we're recommending growers is that if temperatures reach 86 degrees Fahrenheit and above, they implement cooling mechanisms. So what we recommend growers to do is to apply sprinkler irrigation so that they can have evaporative cooling of the blossoms to help bring down those temperatures. Got it. Okay. Well, let's talk about the cross-pollination and the importance of genetics in all this. Uh, how can improved genetics have an impact on pollination in the future? Great question. I think about this a lot because breeders don't necessarily think about pollination, although they're they're starting to. I certainly have heard of Patricia Munez think about this very question. So genetics is important because the flower morphology, as well as other factors within the flower, like nectar secretion, um, are hugely important in terms of attracting our pollinators, particularly we look at honeybees in this case. And so we need, in general, open flowers, large flowers for honeybees to be able to access the flower and pollinate it. And if they're narrow and small, we tend to have a lot of difficulties pollinating those flowers. You mentioned crossing. There's some really fascinating work being done showing how crossing with different cultivars can lead to improved quality. There's been some fantastic work done by a postdoc at the University of Florida, one of our partner institutions for this national project. His name is Stan Schaubert. And what he's showing in both southern and northern highbush blueberry is you can have some pretty significant benefits with cross-pollination or taking pollen from one cultivar and using it to pollinate a separate cultivar. And some of those benefits include things like increased berry size, improved fruit set. And then what's been really interesting is changes in ripening. So uh, shortening the ripening time and then also increasing firmness. And so it's really going to be interesting moving forward. We're going to work on publishing that information. Um, he's going to be publishing it in peer-reviewed journals, but also in extension documents to get that into the hands of growers to see if that's information that they want to leverage as they start to plan new fields and planning orientation and schemes. Yeah. What would those schemes look like in your mind? I mean, how, how would you, I mean, the first question is, is anybody taking advantage of this idea today? And, and then if you were to want to fully take advantage of it, what does that what does that change for production going forward? Yeah, it's going to be a big question because I could see it affecting logistics on the farm quite a bit. If you have different planting schemes to try to facilitate cross-pollination, um, but there are growers that are implementing strategies where they have 
six rows of one cultivar and another six rows of a different cultivar to, to again, get that cross-pollination benefit. I think the big question will be is when you scale up to larger operations, is it providing a significant enough benefit to drive that decision? Sure, sure. You know, we've talked a little bit about what what's caught your eye in the innovation area of technology, but what what of the new technologies that you see today, the approaches that you've worked with, which one do you see having the the best ROI for the average grower? Sure, absolutely. Well, full disclosure, I haven't done the economic analyses yet, um, but the ones that really catch my eye at this time include um, the Roby, which is from Bluemex, and that's the mechanical pollination. I see that being really useful particularly in tunnels or in greenhouses where we don't get the good pollination from honeybees, as well as a tool with pollination. Environmental conditions are suboptimal. Uh, the other one that's really appealing is bee flow. They have basically floral sense that they are feeding to bees to train them to forage on a specific crop. And so I think it'll be really exciting to see how that fits into kind of the blueberry ecosystem and again, what the cost efficiencies are. A lot of these technologies, it's a conversation with the blueberry grower, um, with these companies providing it. But I think it's also really important to bring in that beekeeper voice because a lot of these blueberry growers have really tight relationships with their beekeepers and they're definitely part of the, the pollination discussion. And so that's something moving forward I want to continue to see that engagement and amplification of beekeepers' voice. I know we can't ask the bees, but I, I feel like the uh, situation of, of understanding the blueberries might not be the most attractive crop to forage. And there's a challenge there that, um, you know, as you were describing the, the bee flow technology and where that economy of scale might be for that to be an affordable technology. Let's talk a little bit about just the challenge for just being in blueberries and pollination. So how do you compare notes against what bees could otherwise be, you know, pollinating versus the fact that we need them to pollinate the blueberries and they're not as interested as maybe some of the other things that are around them? Yeah, absolutely. Well, the blueberry flower is not very attractive to honeybees, um, particularly if there's other flowering species that are present, maple, uh, willow, etc. Um, but at the same time, you know, we sometimes want those other species blooming in the landscape to help provide bee nutrition. But, you know, kind of taking a step back, it's a big challenge. And that's kind of where these new technologies fall into place is what happens if you really struggle achieving pollination from honeybees because you've got unattractive cultivar or you've got a landscape where those honeybees are going to be preferentially choosing other crops instead of your crop. Um, growers have tried having high densities of honeybees to try to just have enough foragers to pollinate their crop. Um, I think that has some benefit, but also there's some consequences. It's expensive and you might be depleting resources in the landscape that might affect bee health in the long run. Um, so again, I think some of these technologies like bee flow or some of the pheromones that are being sold, like Apis Bloom, have the opportunity to kind of be more targeted and attract those honeybees into the field. Still not at a point where we recommend them. I think we need more data but there's definitely the appeal. What future research still needs to happen in this area for us to, as blueberry growers, start to really benefit from what is a challenging environment? So what, what, what do you see is still ahead for research to help us with this? Yeah, 
feels pretty self-serving. I see a lot of research ahead, um, and I say self-serving as a research scientist, but I think, you know, one thing that I've been thinking a lot of is how can we scale up our research from smaller plots to more field level to a situation that a grower would encounter so that we're testing under their conditions. And then really understanding not just the pollination impacts and how it's affecting um, the crop, but also how it's affecting the bees. Um, there's a lot of concern that beekeepers have about their hives health after pollination in blueberry. And that's a whole other area of research that needs to be done and is being done by some great minds. But then, you know, how it's affecting the bees and then how is it affecting the growers bottom line through economic analyses. Well, and blueberries isn't the only crop you're focused on. It's small fruit crops. What, what's unique about blueberries compared to the other crops that you're focused on in pollination? How are they different? Blueberries are different because the flower morphology and the time of bloom is at a point where it's really difficult to achieve the pollination that um, is required for the commercial scale. Uh, other crops like raspberry and strawberry that I work with, they're Flowers are open, they're very attractive to other insect pollinators, including honeybees, and they're also during a time of the year where the temperatures are more conducive. So it's just not the challenge that uh, blueberry growers experience. Sure. Okay. Well, this has been great, and, uh, and I appreciate your time today. You know, this is a big subject. It has a lot of economic ramifications, uh, obviously, if it's not working. Part of our focus now at USHBC is certainly on technology, and this is a big piece of it as we see things going forward. And so the Barry Smart Field, your part in that, working with Steve, us being able to bring the results to the industry, uh, thank you for that. And we really appreciate it. But before we let you go, is there anything else we want to cover before we wrap up here? I just want to thank the industry for being vocal and great participants in the research because I don't know if you've spent a lot of time with researchers, but we sometimes lose track of the bigger picture and having growers input and tell us what's important really helps us do impactful research. Well, the work you're doing is super important. And one of the ways in which we want to keep this conversation going is as soon as that pollination planner is launched, it'd be a good opportunity for us to, you know, go through what you learned from those you were, you were working with before the launch and just talk about how this uh, product and this opportunity for a resource is going to be made available for growers to take advantage of. So that, that's going to be something that we can talk about in the future. And again, uh, thank you for your work on this. This is important work and, and certainly a subject that we're going to continue to be a part of as, uh, as the Berry Smart project move forward and certainly uh, the research continues. So thank you, Lisa. Absolutely. And I just want to extend the thanks to team members on the project because it's really a team effort. Absolutely. All right. Well, that's it for episode 154. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next week with more innovation, collaboration, family, and hard work right here on the Business of Blueberry.